Was that not an amazing video, right, that we just watched? I can tell you, I don't have anything that good, all right? We have reached the pinnacle. Nothing, nothing that good's coming out for the rest of the, no, I'm just kidding. That, that, that is a powerful testimony, and, and I've watched it now three times in a row, and it doesn't get any less powerful the more times you watch it. We were privileged to have uh, Tommy and Shiny from uh, Midnight Christian Mission. I don't know if you guys can see them back there. They're standing by the door. They are here with us today. Give them a round of applause, would you? They are here with us all morning. They were here last night. They're actually going to be out in the atrium today. And I want to encourage you, go talk to them. Um, go learn a little bit more about um, this incredible ministry that we get to partner with them on and help um, financially support and pray for and, and uh, just the generosity of the church pushes evangelism forward. So we're so thankful that you all are with us here today and uh, you all spend some time with them today. Well, as you know, we've been studying our way through the book of Genesis the last few, uh, few months together. And Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. It's all about our heritage. It's our origin story. It's the foundation of our faith. And, and I don't know if you realize this or not. If, if not, if I haven't made this clear, I want to make it clear now that uh, if we didn't have Genesis, we would really have no foundation to our doctrine at all. In fact, I'll tell you that uh, every doctrine, directly or indirectly, goes back to the book of Genesis. Like we talk about God and sin and death and marriage and redemption and many other of these key doctrines of our faith. They all have their beginnings and are, are referred to back in the book of Genesis. I, I would argue that the book of Genesis is foundational to our, our Christian worldview. I would say it's foundational to understanding our reality that we live in. Many of you are familiar with Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis, the uh, Ark Encounter, Creation Museum, all of that. He was asked one time, tell me about Genesis. And this was his answer. I thought it was, it was really quite spot on. He says, Genesis explains how we got here, where stars, oceans, animals, and trees come from. It tells us why there is sin and death in the world, why there are immense fossil beds, and why there are different languages and people groups with different characteristics. Genesis also establishes the basic parameters of living on God's earth according to the precepts in his word. It sets forth the creator's design and instruction for all that is, including humanity. And I'm like, that's pretty good. That is really good summation of the book of Genesis and what we learn from that. Friends, it is foundational. It is no coincidence that Genesis is the most attacked book in the Bible. Because if they can undergird or dismantle the book of Genesis, which they'll never be able to do, but if they can, then really the whole Bible falls apart. That's never going to happen. But it is the most attacked book in the Bible. So it has been an awesome honor to study it with you together these last now, believe it or not, 19 weekends in the book of Genesis. And I'm breaking every rule they ever taught me in preaching classes. You know, don't preach long series. Well, I guess we're doing okay. So anyway, 19 weeks into it, all right? We're just gonna keep going. Well, awesome. I'll tell you, what that really is, is, is there's a hunger for God's word. And, and, and we're going to be eating God's word. That's what it is. And so we're gonna be in God's word. And I pray and hope that uh, our study through Genesis has helped elevate your faith, elevate your knowledge of God, has spurred you on to be more like Christ. That's the whole idea. That's what the word of God does. It advances our knowledge and our wisdom and our Christ-likeness. And I pray that's exactly what it's been for you. Well, we are now to chapter 30 and 31. So will you please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30 and 31. 
one. That's where we're gonna be today. And while you're finding that, let me just remind you that we are tracking with Jacob's story. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. He's the third generation of the promise that God told to Abraham. And we've learned some things about Jacob. He's been on quite a journey, hasn't he? Where we're at in the story with Jacob is he now has four wives and he has 12 children. That's 11 sons and one daughter to be exact. And I, I want to say this to you and I feel like I need to say it multiple times just to make sure that, that we get this clear. That Jacob had multiple wives and we see others in the Bible had multiple wives. But I want you to know something. God never sanctioned plural marriage. Not for Jacob, not for anyone, not anywhere in the Bible. This is right here. We see Jacob having all these wives and other people. I can tell you it is the result of what we would call earthly wisdom, not heavenly or godly wisdom. It's the result of people doing whatever they feel is right. In fact, as you go through the Bible, you come across that thinking sometimes. You, you read this language that everybody did whatever they felt was right in their own eyes. You, you come across that from time to time. Usually it's in the context of when their world is falling apart or God is punishing them or the context of evil. But we see it time and time again. People did whatever they wanted to do in their own eyes, whatever seemed right to them. In other words, they left God out of their decision-making and how well does that work out for people in the Bible? It doesn't. It doesn't ever work out. And we're seeing plenty of that in Jacob's story. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 tells us this, that there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. Boy, I'll tell you, there's plenty of that happening between Genesis chapter 25 and Genesis chapter 30. Not very many people in these last few chapters are, are taking a knee saying, Lord, what would you want for me? Nobody's really doing that. Now, now, as a result, Jacob has four wives. He's living in a not-so-happy home, and he's working a job he doesn't want to work for 14 years for free. So yeah, earthly wisdom has not gotten him where he wants to be in life. Now that 14 years, just a reminder, when he meets Laban and he falls madly in love with Laban's daughter, he's like, what do I got to do to have your daughter as my wife? And he says, work for me seven years. He says, gladly. At the end of that seven years, it's the wedding night. Laban switches brides. How does that happen? Well, we looked at that already. And he's like, you tricked me. And he says, well, I'll let you marry Rachel too a week from now, but you've got to work for me seven more years. He goes, fine. So that's where we get the 14 years he's working for Laban to pay for his two wives. And now when you get to Genesis chapter 30, we learn that Jacob's 14-year obligation to his father-in-law is now over. It is completed. And, and Jacob is now free to go do whatever he wants in the world. And you wonder, what will he do if you've never read the story? What will a guy do with four wives and 12 kids and, and can go anywhere in the world? What does he want to do? I would think, and again, I, I don't know this for sure. I'm just thinking from one human to another. This has got to be a pretty exciting time for him. I'd imagine the last 14 years have been extremely difficult in many ways. And he's like, I'm free. I can just... I, can go. I wonder if, if Jacob was like, the next 14 years are gonna be better than the previous 14 years. I wonder if he said to his wives, we're gonna write a new chapter in our story and it's gonna be a lot better. I, I don't know what he was thinking. I can relate a little bit to this. When, when my wife and I were in our mid-20s, we were newly married and I just finished grad school and I was working at a large church in Oklahoma on staff there as the college pastor. And um, unfortunately, that ministry did not work out like we had hoped. And in a very quick manner, 
manner, I found myself out of a job, out of ministry. And I was that way for four months. I didn't know what was coming next. And, and uh, man, was that ner- a nervous season? Well, yeah, it was a nervous time. Have you ever been out of work? It's a little bit nervous. I got a little bit more nervous when my wife came to me one day during that four months. She said, huh, guess what? What? We're having a baby. I was really. And so I, I don't know what there was to be nervous about. Um, no job. No permanent home. Uh, baby on the way. I mean, I don't, I don't know what makes you nervous in life. Uh, so yeah, a little bit of nervous. But I'll tell you what I remember more than anything out of that season of our life was just the excitement about what was about to happen. Of course, there's the excitement of having a baby, our first child, and all that, everything you hope and pray for. And, and, uh, but beyond that, we had just finished one of the most stressful seasons of our lives, and how we would describe that season is, we are free, and we can go do whatever we wanna do. And, 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 and we would pray, God, where are you gonna send us? We really felt like, you know, the whole world was open to us and God might send us in. We traveled the country and we did all kinds of stuff looking for, Lord, where do you want us to plant? We would pray and we thought about planting a church and all this stuff. And, and uh, I'll tell you, it's, it's a unique experience if you've ever been there. And I wonder if Jacob's kind of like that. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. So what is he going to do? Well, the Bible tells us what he wants to do. The Bible tells us that after 14 years, Jacob's like, I want to go home. That's what I want to do. I want to go back to my father's house. And so if you look at chapter 30, verse 25, that's where we're going to pick up on the story. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you and I will be on my way. You know how much work I have done for you. Now there's no indication in the text why Jacob wanted to go home. And there's no indication from our text that his brother Esau is any less angry than he was 14 years before. Now you might remember, why did Jacob even run away? It's because his brother Esau threatened to kill him and he's like, I'm out of here. And so there's no indication yet from the text that, that this is gonna be okay for him to go home. It's just like, he's like, I'm, I'm ready. 14 years, four wives, 12 kids, time to go home. But look at verse 27. But Laban, which is his father-in-law, Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And he added, name your wages and I'll pay them. Now I find this very interesting because Laban makes a reference to Jacob's God in his reasoning for wanting Jacob to stay. And the reason that's so interesting to me is because Laban is not a God follower. He is an idol worshiper. And it's a detail that becomes more clear a little bit later in the story. He's an idol worshiper. That's what's most important to him. What in the world does he care about Jacob's God? Well, I think from his point of view, this is what he knows. All he knows is when Jacob came into his life, his life got better. That's what he knows. He makes a connection. It's got to have something to do with Jacob's God. Um, I, I don't want you to think for a second that Laban is turning over a new leaf. It's not like he's saying, I have seen the way. Uh, now I'm going to follow God and throw away all my idols. No, that doesn't happen. But, but Laban is somewhat interested in something about 
Jacob and his God. And he makes the connection, my life is better. I've got to think, I'm just deducing some information. In the 14 years that Jacob knew Laban, I would imagine at least once it came up in conversation around the dinner table that, uh, hey, my grandfather Abraham talked about being visited by God. In fact, he called God his friend. God made him a promise. And I've heard something about that promise that we're going to get all this land one day. Maybe, I don't know, human nature. I think maybe Laban's thinking, my life got better because of Jacob. Maybe there's something to these stories and maybe I should keep Jacob around because maybe I want a little bit of that blessing too. It's hard to say. We, we don't know. We're, like I said, we're not mind readers. We just have what the Bible tells us. But he's like, Jacob, I want you to stick around and you name your wages and I'll pay them, which I think is funny because the last time Laban said to Jacob, name your wages, it cost him 14 years of his life, all right? And it was the exact same phrase. In fact, what we just are, where we're at in the story connects to Genesis 29, 15. When he looks at, Le, at, at Jacob 14 years early, he says, name your wages and I'll pay him. I think, I think Jacob's learned a few things about good old father-in-law that whenever he starts a conversation with anything, name your wages, it ain't gonna go good for who he's saying that to. I think Jacob's a little bit more prepared for the name your wages conversation that he has with Laban. Now, the next chapter and a half, let me just tell you, I'm gonna summarize it for you. We're not gonna read the whole thing. I'm counting on you to read it. There's gonna be details, like I've shared with you many times, that I'm not gonna cover, but a lot of where we're heading, I'm gonna summarize large parts of this story to help meet our time frame here. Uh, but you're gonna get more if you read it. But here's what happens next. They have this name your wages conversation and they come to an agreement. And the agreement starts out like this. Jacob's like, hey, I've worked for you for 14 years and I got nothing to show for it. Uh, I, got, I got nothing to show that I've built anything. I need to build something for my family. So if I stick around, when, when, then we gotta figure something out. So Laban's like, oh, whatever, what do you want? And so money, back then, wealth wasn't built because you had a lot in your checking account. Wealth was built different ways. And Jacob knows that. He goes, listen, I'll tell you what I want. For my wages, I want all the spotted and speckled animals in your flock. And that would leave behind the, the colored animals or the, the, the solid colored animals, I mean, for, for Laban, which were the more prized possession back then. So they, they come to this agreement. Okay, you want all the spotted and speckled animals, which Laban would not prize as highly, and I get to keep all the solid colored animals and that's your wages. And, and Jacob's like, yeah, I want to go through right now. And then all the speckled and spotted ones born in the future will be mine. And, and Laban's like, sure. And I'm wondering if maybe in the back of Laban's mind, he's thinking, this, this guy's not good at negotiating. I, I, I really don't, I don't know. All I have is what the text says, but that's the agreement they came to. So Jacob went through the flock, pulled out all the speckled and spotted ones, sent him off with his boys, and he continued to serve Laban, uh, tending his flocks like he had always done. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. The next part of the Bible, I really don't understand all that well. I mean, I intellectually understand what happened, but I don't have a farming background. I don't have a, a, a lot of experience with farm animals or herding or shepherding. I, maybe some of you can clue me in a little bit, but what Jacob does, I think next, um, is kind of like in the same vein as the mandrake plants that we talked about last week. There's a lot of superstition, you know, how he's going to breed these animals and take care of them. And he, and he puts stuff in the water and he does all these things. And there's, there's a long history of thousands of years of, of shepherds and farmers doing all kinds of things to make animals do what they want them to do. But whatever he did, whatever happened, he got these solid colored animals to produce really strong, healthy, spotted 
and speckled animals. And he was able to take, and over six years, right underneath Laban's nose, he builds this incredible flock for himself of speckled and spotted animals that were stronger, healthier, more productive than anything that Laban had. So basically over six years, Jacob worked away. All the strong animals went to him and all the weak animals went to Laban. Now, many people say this, and, and there's no indication that it's in scripture, but many people say things like, like this is where Jacob's shrewdness really comes in to focus here. This is where he gets back at his, his father-in-law for cheating him and manipulating him. I don't know if that's true or not, but at the end of the day, Jacob came out pretty good on all of this and his wealth was wrapped up in what he could could, could uh, build. And so it says in chapter 30, verse 43, in this way, the man, speaking of Jacob, he grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female males and servants and, and, uh, and male servants and camels and donkeys. So his wealth is on what he was able to build for himself. But I will say this, if you keep reading, Jacob's little plan eventually catches up to him. Now I've analyzed it and um, for the best I can tell, that Jacob didn't technically do anything that violated the agreement he had with Laban. I, I don't know if we get down to the fine print and he did something wrong, but just based on what we know, I can't see anything that he technically did, but I think you can make the argument that what he did morally was at least questionable. I don't think he followed the intent or the heart of the agreement, and he came out on the other end a pretty wealthy guy, but it's gonna catch up with him because Laban's sons, who are also shepherds and also caring for the flocks, they start to notice something, something's fishy going on with the animals. And here's what happened, Third, chapter 31, verse one. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying that Jacob has taken everything our father owned and he gained all of his wealth from what belonged to our father. So Jacob's boys are like, you're messing us over. Can't put our finger on it. You're doing something. And then it says, Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. I don't know, have you ever had an experience like that? Maybe with a family member or a neighbor or a coworker and all of a sudden you're getting a cold shoulder or you're getting the weird looks. You're like, uh, did I do something wrong? This is what Jacob's experiencing. He feels it. Now, let me help you with the timeline because it gets a little confusing. Jacob ran away from home. And now he has been um, in a, a new land for 20 years. 20 years has passed by. 14 years, he was serving his father-in-law to pay for his two wives. And then he spent another six years tending the flocks of his father-in-law for his wages of all the speckled and spotted animals. And he built an incredible flock for himself. 20 years has gone by. And Jacob instinctively knows my time is short here. I, I, my, my welcome has run out. But there's something else that's gonna happen too. It's not just that's going on, but there is something really spiritual that's about to take place in Jacob's life. And, and it's gonna change everything. There, there's this spiritual thing that takes place and Jacob is about to have what I would call a turning point. Turning points are big deals in life. Now, we all instinctively know what a turning point is. There's lots of language we could put around a turning point. But when I think about a turning point, especially as it relates to Jacob here in Genesis chapter 31, a, a, a turning point begins with great awareness. There's a great awareness, or there is a momentum shift that takes place. And this awareness and this momentum shift, it points you in a brand new direction 
in life. Have you ever had one of those? Yes, we've all had turning points in our lives where we become aware and something shifts in momentum and we forge out in a whole new way. That is what's going to happen to Jacob, but it's a very spiritual turning point. It's a very spiritual shift in momentum and and it's a big one. Look at verse three. This is where this shift happens. This is the front edge of his turning point. The Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. I want you to see something very significant in this text. Jacob at this moment is not really living the kind of life that anybody would say, now that's the model believer. And we've seen that, right? The last 20 years or more that Jacob's not walking the walk. But God comes to him And he reminds him of something. Jacob, I've never taken my eyes off you. Some people mistakenly say, this is where God inserts himself back into the story. And I would say, no, no, no. This is where God makes Jacob aware that he never left his story. This is where where God's saying, Jacob, I've gone nowhere. Now you haven't been looking at me, but I've been looking at you. And I keep my promises. No, no, this is not God showing back up and reinserting himself into Jacob's life. This is God reminding Jacob, I never took myself out. And I wonder if there's not a one of us in here at least that needs to be that, that reminder today because you might be wondering, God, I don't know if you're walking with me and God wants you to know today, I'm still walking with you. You're just not paying attention to me. I never left your story. Maybe today's the first time you're reminded that I'm still very much a part of your story. We'll get into that just in another minute or two. So God reminds Jacob, I've never taken my eyes off you at all. Now, I want you to rewind the clock 20 years, all right? 20 years, back to Genesis chapter 28. 20 years ago, Jacob was running away from his brother, remember? And he goes to this place that we later would learn it's called Bethel, and he lays down to sleep, and he has a dream. Do you remember this coming back from a couple weeks ago? And what does he see in this dream? He sees a, a stairway to heaven and angels going up and down with God at the very top, and God reminds him that I'm with you, and I've got this promise, You're gonna, I'm gonna give you this land and you're going to be a mighty nation that's going to bless all people in all the world. And and then God tells Jacob this in chapter 28, verse 15. This is 20 years ago. This is the flashback. He said, Jacob, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This entire time, God has been watching over Jacob. Now that doesn't mean that God stepped in and kept Jacob from making all of these foolish decisions and great folly. No, God didn't do that for him. And I don't think God steps in for us a lot of times to keep us from making mistakes. We have what's called free will. We can freely love God and obey him if we want. And we can freely disobey. So he let Jacob freely do his life, but his, his eyes were always on him. So God didn't stop him from his blunder, but kept careful watch. And what we are learning, and I hope what you've seen, because we get the whole Bible, that there is a whole lot more going on in Jacob's story than what he could ever see in the moment. I believe it's at this front edge of this turning point that Jacob is, is experiencing is, is that there is an awareness that there is a whole lot more going on in the world than what's specifically happening in my life right now. You might say that maybe he's starting to tune in, that maybe there is a bigger picture out there. 
There was a pilot one time who was flying over a mountainous highway and he could see all the bends and turns and winds in the highway and he could see for miles in every direction because he could see the whole thing. And he made this observation. He looked down on the highway and he saw a big semi-truck, a big 18-wheeler that was, had a heavy load and he was trying to go up and down and through the mountains. And he also noticed that right behind the truck was this little red two-seat sports car trying to get around him. And, and the pilot said, I bet you that guy's really frustrated because he can't get around the truck. And we've all been there, right? We've been driving through the mountains and it's not the truck driver's fault. It's just hard terrain, steep grades, and they don't have any control over it. Um, and even though we think they should, and we want to get around them, but we don't do it because we can't see what's coming. And the pilot makes this observation. The pilot looked out for miles and could not see one car coming. And the pilot thought to himself, man, if that guy in the red sports car could see what I'm seeing, then he would go around that truck, no problems, no danger whatsoever, and he would just keep going. But he can't see what I see. And he can't see because he and the truck driver can only see what's right in front of them, not what's well beyond them. In other words, they can't see the big picture that the pilot can see. And that's a lot of our lives, isn't it? We only see things from the perspective of the created. It's hard for us. It's harder for us to see things from the perspective of the creator who can see it all. And right here in this text, Jacob is starting to get a little bit of awareness that God can see miles ahead. And he said, Jacob, I've always watched you. I've never taken my eyes off you. I've got a plan for you. Remember the promise I made your grandpa and the promise I told your dad? Remember the promise I've reminded you of? It's not going away. Jake is becoming aware there's a, there's a bigger picture and this is a, a big time turning point in his life. And I wonder today, I'm just wondering if there's not some of us in here today that, uh, that might be in the exact same spot. Maybe you're here today and you're contemplating this journey called life that you're on. Maybe, if we're being honest, we're not all that different than Jacob. You've been aware of God your whole life, but you didn't know he was with you. Remember 20 years ago, when Jacob had that dream about the staircase, he woke up and he goes, wow, God was with me and I didn't know it. And I wonder if that describes something. We're, we, we've heard all the stories. We grew up in Sunday school. We, we, we know all the things. We can name the books of the Bible. We're aware. We're very aware of God. But we didn't know he's with us. And maybe in life, you're just like Jacob. And, and maybe you've been asking some of these hard questions in life. Like, like, like isn't there more to this world? Isn't there, isn't there more going on? There, there's got to be more than what I see right now. I, I think you need to be reminded today that God still has his eyes on you and because you've wondered if he does. And he does. In the midst of all of this going on and this turmoil with Laban and the change of attitude, Jacob decides that, uh, that I gotta go home. I'm gonna obey God and I'm gonna go home. So this is what he did next. He calls his wives out to the field so he can have a family meeting. Look at chapter 31, verse four. God told me to go, so I'm gonna go. And then he says, he sent word to Rachel and Leah, his two wives, to come out to the fields where his flocks were. And he said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before, but 
the God of my father has been with me. Now, this is a change in conversation. The, the God of my father, he's acknowledging something that has never been acknowledged yet. God is with me. And that, like, for the first, best I can tell, this is the first time that he has really acknowledged this. He is with me. He, he knew about it, but he didn't always with him. And now he knows God is with me. And now he's going to tell his wives all the reasons for why he knows that God is with him and has been with him. Look at verse six. He says to his wives, you know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages 10 times. However, catch this part, God has not allowed him to harm me. This is, this is part of his turning point. God stopped him from doing things to me. And then, and then he goes on to say, if he said the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked ones. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. I, I want you to see what Jacob's doing. He is giving all this credit to God and this is a first for him. All the credit for his provisions. All the credit for his protection. But he has more to share with his wife. He's like, oh, no, no, I got more. Look at verse 10. He said, he wants to tell him about a dream he had one time. He said, in breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and I saw the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. And the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. This is God very much. <laughs> Hope everybody's okay back there. <laughs> this is God making us aware of some things. I remember preaching one time, so I sidetrack, um, and, and we had a big thunderbolt and, in the sky, and I remember making a really powerful statement about God something, and then and all the lights went out, and I'm like, see, told you, and, and, you know, <laughs> and then it came back on, and I said, now, we're going to have some baptisms later. No, I was like, <laughs> hope you're okay back there, whatever that was. But uh, in this dream, God's making Jacob aware of some things. And, and I try to point out in scripture, very obvious places where, where um, nothing escapes God's notice and he sees everything and he sees what's going on in our lives. This is one of those. It's like he's telling Jacob, I know what's happening to you. Don't think for a second I haven't paid attention to how Laban is cheating you. And, and for the record, you think your craftiness and your shrewdness built this great flock feet? No, 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 no. I did that. I did that for you. And he's telling his wives all about it. God's doing this. And then in verse 13, he says, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. And friends, that is all that Jacob needed. Jacob now has come to the awareness that God has been with him all these years. Uh, I don't know if Jacob is fully aware of just how much folly has been involved in his life, but he is aware now that God has never taken his eyes off of him, and he's realizing now for the first time that the reason he has prospered is only because of God and nothing else. So Jacob gathers up his family, and he's like, we're out of here, and off they go, and he did not tell Laban. So you know that went over well. 
He's like, I'm out. And he leaves. And, and Jacob had about a three-day head start. And when Laban finds out that Jacob took off with his two daughters and his 12 grandchildren, he's infuriated. And he rounds up all of his people. And he takes off after Jacob. And it takes him seven days. But he eventually catches up with Jacob. Now, remember, Jacob is moving a huge um, a flock of animals, a, a, a sheep and goats. He's got... 12 kids, he's got four wives, he's got servants and kids. This is not a, a fast moving process. So Laban, even with a three day head start, was able to catch up with him. And if you read the text, and I hope you will, it looks like Laban is on his way to hurt Jacob. That's, that's, that's the impression we get. But right before Laban overtakes Jacob's um, caravan, God visits Laban in a dream. It's chapter 31, verse 24. Here's what it says. Then God came to Laban, the Armenian, in a dream at night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And I wonder if that's the entire conversation. You ever wonder about that? The Bible tells us what happens, but, and I don't know, but I, I wonder if the conversation was a little bit longer than that. I, I wonder if it went like this. Hey, Laban. Hey, buddy. Good to see you. Jacob's my guy. And be careful. Because I'll break you. I'll absolutely break you in half if you touch my guy. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if it went like that. But all we know is what the Bible tells us. He says, Laban, you better watch yourself. and You better mind your P's and Q's because you're talking to my guy. Something a little comforting about that, personally. So Laban catches up. He's still angry as can be. And he and, and Jacob have a full-on confrontation, but it's not physical. And Laban even says to him, hey, I could hurt you, Jacob. I really could. But God, your God told me last night to be careful. And so I'm going to do that. And basically, Laban's issue is that uh, he believes that everything that Jacob's got was his. He believes that he kidnapped his two daughters and his 12 grandchildren. But what he's really irritated about is he believes that Jacob stole the family idols. And this is where all this idol talk, he is so angry. He executes a search warrant on all of Jacob's stuff and he comes up empty and, uh, but he's not convinced. But anyway, Jacob and Laban, they go head to head and they have it out. Laban lets off 20 years of frustration to Jacob and Jacob turns around and he lays in 20 years of frustration to, to Laban about how he's cheated him and ripped him off and changed his wages and all of this stuff. I mean, they, they get it out. I don't think this is a family counseling session and because, because all they do at the end is agree to disagree. There's no really resolution. Jacob, Laban's like, you stole my stuff. You stole my family. And Jacob's like, go out in the desert and pound sand. That's, uh, <laughs> and that's where they ended the conversation. And they said, fine, let's make a covenant between the two of us. So they set up two pillars and these pillars represent boundaries. And it says this, it's saying this, Laban, you don't cross this boundary with any intentions to harm me ever. And I won't cross this boundary with any intentions to ever harm you. And if we obey that, we'll be good. And they kind of shake hands, they have dinner. Laban hugs and kisses his daughters and grandchildren and he goes home and Jacob heads on to his homeland. You know, a few weeks ago, I told you that um, you're not going to like Jacob for a while. And I still am not convinced that we still like, we, we have yet to get to that point where we like Jacob. But I don't know if you remember, I told you, if you stick with it, if you just stick with it and don't give up on this story, you're going to see that in the end, there is a change 
in this man's heart. And what we're studying here in chapter 30 and chapter 31 is the front edge of Jacob's turning point. Is he gonna be a perfect guy? Is he gonna make perfect decisions this point forward? No, no different than any of the rest of us. We don't make perfect decisions. We don't always make the right call. But this is the front edge of his turning point. And honestly, as I evaluate this, I, I don't think that it's all that different than the turning points that you and I experience throughout our lifetime. Maybe, maybe some of you are on the front edge of a turning point yourself. And here's what the front edge of a turning point may look like. It starts with this. It starts with an awareness that there is a bigger picture. To me, I think every turning point starts right there. There's an awareness of a bigger picture. Have you ever asked the question or you've wondered about, maybe you put your own words on it, but you thought there's gotta be more to life than this. Some of you are Christians today because you started with that question. There's got to be more than this. Maybe you didn't know it at the time, and maybe you don't know it right now, but that is the front edge of some awareness that I believe that God wants to make you aware of. And perhaps that's where you are right now. And I get to tell you, yes, there is definitely a bigger picture out there. Jacob's story reminds us of that. Jacob was not aware of the bigger picture until God made him aware. And when Jacob started to connect the dots that, uh, and this awareness, like whatever my grandpa told me, what my dad told me, what God is telling me, there there is this awareness that God is up to something. Proverbs chapter one, verse seven says this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, an awareness, an understanding that God is, is there and I am down here and he is big and he's more powerful. There is an awareness that God is real and alive in our world. And that, my friends, is the beginning of knowledge. I would say it's the beginning of a turning point that some of you may be on the front edge right now. There's awareness. And maybe God's using me in this church to help open your eyes and be aware of God. That awareness leads to the second one. And the second is this, that everything you've been through must have purpose. Because we ask these questions, what, what in the world's going on with my life? Why have things transpired the way that they have transpired? Why are things right now? What's gonna become of these things? And we have conversations and questions around purpose. You know, the famous painter, Bob Ross. We've all seen him and I've watched him many times something soothing about it. I don't get it. I was like, oh. But he used to say something like this. It's not an exact quote, but it goes something like this. There's no mess ups, just happy little accidents. All right, you've seen it too. Guilty. That's great for painting. That's great for painting. There's no accidents, just happy little accidents. There's no mess ups, just happy. But Everything I can discern from scripture, God doesn't work in happy little accidents because everything I learn about God in the Bible is that he's a very on-purpose God. Very on. Even our mess-ups can become purposeful in his hands. Proverbs 16.4 says, the Lord has made everything for his purpose. And friends, if we had a microphone setting up here and we took about three hours to just let anybody come on up here and just say, let me tell you how God has taken my mess ups and turned them into something great, like it says in Romans, that would be something, wouldn't it? I think the line would be out the door. Let me tell you what God has made that was ugly into something very beautiful. God's a very on purpose God. And so there's this awareness 
If you're on the front edge of a turning point, it's because there's awareness that, that there's a bigger picture in this whole world. And, and, and God's a part of that bigger picture. There's this awareness that everything's got to have a purpose and that this God that I'm becoming aware of is a very on-purpose God. And he's very creative. He's very purposeful. And we see that in creation, everything we've seen in Genesis. He's, he's a very on, on purpose. We see that for Jacob when he starts to tell his wives about the purposeful things that God has done. Which leads to this third uh, awareness. And it's this, it's an acknowledgement that it was God. So there's a bigger picture. I think there's things that are happening on purpose and that purpose is all about, about God. Jacob realized this. You remember what he said? He said, God took away the livestock from your father-in-law and gave it to me. That was God's doing. And when he said that, when God told him that, uh, hey, Jacob, I know exactly what Laban is doing to you. So in other words, Jacob's acknowledging there's this part of his turning point is God did this. And that leads to this fourth awareness of any turning point, And it's this, you're going to give glory to God for it. Glory to God for it. That's what Jacob did. He said to his wives, remember, but the God of my father has been with me. Do you hear the praise going back to, it's not just an acknowledgement that God did purposeful things, but he gets the glory for those things. And then he says, God, remember he said, God took away your livestock. We just looked at it and gave them to me. God gets the glory. I thought it was all my cunningness and my doing and my expansive knowledge on breeding. No, God did it. So friends, I don't know where you're at today, but I've just got to believe in a church our size. Some of you are wrestling through some of these things and you might just be on the front edge of a turning point. There's a bigger picture out there and God's very on purpose and you're starting to wake up to it. Then you're going to begin to see God's doing things. He's, he's involved and he gets all the glory. You know, Jacob ran away from home 20 years earlier and now he's going to return home. And I'm going to tell you something. The man who ran away from home is not the same man who's returning home. And who in here is thankful through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that you are not the same person today that you were back then. I think you might start to like Jacob moving forward. Some good things in the future. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you all honor and glory and praise today for all that you've done. And Lord, as always, we thank you for your holy word. And I thank you, Lord, that you don't sugarcoat the Bible for us. You just lay it out there and it's our choice to obey and believe. Lord, it's, it's our prerogative to explore your scriptures and to see if it's true. Lord, I pray you continue to give us a hunger for your word, desire to know you better. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room today, whether they knew it or not, they're on the edge of a spiritual turning point in their life. And Lord, they've asked questions like there's gotta be more to this life. There's things that are happening. There, there's gotta be some purpose behind it, some reason. And Lord, maybe that reason is you. And if it is, I wanna give you glory. Lord, if for any of us on that trajectory, Lord, I pray you just draw near through your spirit and just remind and comfort and ease that, hey friend, I have never 
taken myself out of your story. But right now you're being reminded that I've always been a part of it and I've never left you and I see everything. I've got the aerial view of your life. Trust me. Lord, this is our hope for all of us. And Lord, we struggle to see the big picture, but what your word clearly says is that we can trust you and you do see it. So Lord, we do trust you. We affirm, Lord, that you are the creator God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And three days later, rose to life and is alive today. And we will see you again for all eternity one day. Lord, you are that God. And we are that aware of your work in this world. So Lord, help us to live that way. Lord, make us more like you in all we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.